whether a sound system works or not, your word's going to go forth. And uh, we don't want to be distracted with those things. What we want to do is we want to just be able to, to go through the text, have you touch our hearts. So help us to really open up our ears uh, right now spiritually, soften our hearts that we may be ones that are teachable. And Lord, we want to be here tonight so we can know you more, we can see your faithfulness, we can be encouraged and instructed and uplifted, and that's what we want. So just bless this time in the study of the Word of God um, as it is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, so pierce our hearts with it. Plant the seed of your word in our hearts that it may bear fruit in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now you recall that Nehemiah, that he is bringing back the third wave of return from the Babylonian captivity. In Ezra chapters 1 through 6, what we saw is that Cyrus, the first king of the Medes and the Persians, after they defeated the Babylonians, they were ones um, that um, would come into the city Cyrus and take city of Babylon is recorded in Daniel chapter 5. But Cyrus then in his first year of make a decree that they could come back, the Jews, to Judah, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And so that's what they did in about 536 BC. They would return and begin to build the temple and they would eventually complete the second temple that would start the second temple era that would continue up to 70 AD when the Romans came in and they destroyed the second temple. So here's the rubble and Joshua building the, the second temple. It was a modest building at that time. It wasn't grand like Solomon's temple was, but eventually it would become grand later on right before the birth of Jesus that we know that it was uh, Herod that would remodel that temple. So he would come back and then we know about 80 years later that Ezra came back, that scribe and that priest, and he was one that really had a heart for the people to, to live in righteousness and he called the people to repentance and the sins that uh, they were involved in and we saw that in chapter 7 through 10. Well about 15 years after here comes Nehemiah. And as we saw last week in chapter 1, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. The king at this time is Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah, he has been born in um, captivity. He's never been to Judah. He had never been to Jerusalem. And he gets word that from his brethren that were there and came back to Shushan, where he is there serving the king. Uh, Nehemiah was, that, hey, Jerusalem still is in rubble. The walls are down. The people are discouraged. The people are defeated. And, um, and when Nehemiah hears that, he's very much uh, bothered by it. He begins to, matter of fact, mourn and weep, as we saw in verse 4. And he began to fast and pray. And he did that for a time of four months. And what really in, encourages me, what really um, touches me is I about Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the king. And you know that that position was a very prestigious position. He was responsible to make sure that the king was safe. He made sure that everything, the refreshments and what the king drank, as well as some of the food that he ate, that was safe and that there was nobody trying to poison the king and the drink that he had or the food that he ate. So it was very much a prestigious position. It was a position where the king had to trust the cupbearer, where the king had confidence in the trust bearer, and that cupbearer was faithful to the king. So that was the position that Nehemiah was in. And he didn't react when he heard that his brethren in Jerusalem, some 500 miles away, hey, they're going through trouble, they're going through difficulties. It wasn't like, oh, that's just too bad. Um, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm, you know, got my career going. I'm really... Uh, you know, in a, a good position. He, he cared about his brethren. He had a heart for people. And you see that with Nehemiah. And I just want to mention that because what can happen if we're not careful is our position in life or our possessions in life or our prestige or whatever it might be can sometimes get in the way of us really having a heart for people. And what my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would be tender-hearted as the scripture says that's the fruit of the spirit to be tender-hearted just have a soft heart towards people and and that we would mourn for people who aren't doing well in the things of god who don't know the lord and um and we would have a soft heart in that way that we would pray and that we would be sensitive 
to them. And that's what Nehemiah was. He, he mourned for his brethren. And as he's praying and as he's weeping for that time, God is changing his heart. God is doing a work in his heart. And we see that Nehemiah, he's wanting to do something and God is preparing him for what we saw in chapter 2 as we ended at verse 6 that Nehemiah asked the king if he could go back to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And you see that as we open up chapter 2 in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that Nehemiah is there before the king and he has a countenance that's full of sorrow and, and sadness, and the king notices it. And he, he's asking Nehemiah, why are you so sad? Why sorrow of heart? And Nehemiah became fearful, as verse 2 tells us. And the reason that he is fearful is because he is in that position of trust. And if the king, you know, looks at Nehemiah and, and notices that he's sorrowful and, and um, he's sad, that be an insult to the king it might be that uh, the king is is wondering are you up to something nehemiah are you facing pressure can i trust you to make sure that i'm safe there's all kinds of reactions that the king might have that is not favorable towards nehemiah because nehemiah was to be joyful before the king he was to be confident before the king and the king notices that there's something not quite right with nehemiah at that time hey there full of sorrow, you're, you're sad, what's going on here? And I think one of the other reasons that Nehemiah was very much full of fear is because you can go back to Ezra chapter 4, and you remember in Ezra chapter 4 that it was a letter that was written by those who are opposing the Jews in Judah and in Jerusalem. And they don't want the Jews to, to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and be established in the land. What we see is those who are coming against the Jews write a letter to Artaxerxes, and they said, listen, that they're desiring to rebuild Jerusalem, and um, there are people that have been in rebellion against kings before, and you need to put a stop to this, or they're going to rebel against you, King Artaxerxes. And they've been ones that have done that before. So Artaxerxes, in Ezra chapter 4, writes a letter back and says, we've checked the record. And you're right, they have been a rebellious people. And in former times, they have rebelled against kings that ruled over them. And of course, making reference to Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and took Jerusalem and took Judah, it would be Judah that rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He first uh, saw that rebellion, and as we saw in Chronicles chapter 36, and Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, and they threw him over the wall and, um, in Jerusalem, and he was done for. So Nebuchadnezzar puts another king in there, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened after that was that Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and destroyed Solomon's temple. You guys are right. They have rebelled against former kings. So why should I have rebuild Jerusalem to the hurt of the king? And I think that Nehemiah is being one that he knows what's going on here. And he's in a trusted position. You see, not only does he have to have confidence, not only is he making sure that the king is safe, but he is hearing the conversations of the king as he's before the king continually, and he has to be entrusted with the things that he's hearing. He has to hold it in confidence. So again, a lot of responsibility on Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is probably wondering, if I ask the king to go back and rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem, he might think that I'm in rebellion. He might think that I'm trying to hurt him. So that's why I think that he was dreadfully afraid. He wasn't just a little bit afraid. He was really afraid. But yet God had been working on his heart. God had been, been working on his heart, but here's the thing. God had been working on Artaxerxes' heart as well. You know, sometimes when we just take that time to pray and we continue to pray and, and, and the Lord puts something on our heart and we're wondering, Lord, when's the door going to be open for me to step through that door to do what it is that you've put on my heart that you're calling me to do? But you see, God is not only working in your heart, but he's working in other hearts as well, perhaps. 
He's working, he sees the big picture. Sometimes we don't see the big picture. And Artaxerxes was one that said, hey, you tell those Jews over there in Jerusalem, they better not be building the wall until I give the command. And right now, here it is months later. Who knows if it's years later. It is years later after he wrote that letter because he wrote that letter, you know, probably during the time of Ezra. And here he is in the 20th year of his reign and God has been working in his heart. See, God will work in a situation to bring everything together. And perhaps that, that he's working in other people's hearts so you can minister in a way that he wants you to minister. So he asks, Nehemiah, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah shoots up a quick prayer as, as we saw in verse 4. And that's a good model for us to follow after, that we should pray and always be sensitive to praying, not only in those times where we're really seeking the Lord like Nehemiah did, in those times that, that you and I will have in our devotions in the morning or in the night times when we're praying, but also being sensitive to just pray, you know, in the moment and, and shoot up those quick prayers to the Lord. Lord, help me. Lord, give me wisdom right now. Lord, give me strength right now. And that's what Nehemiah does. And so he asks, can I go back to Jerusalem? And, and I'm sad because of, of the city, the place of my fathers. It lies waste and the gates are burned with fire. And the king said, what is it that you request? And so he would ask that he would go back and um, he would be able to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And that's where we kind of left off. We left off at verse 6. And the king said to me, and the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. So he gets permission as he goes back um, to Jerusalem, as we're going to see here as we continue in the chapter, and he's going to be rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, as I mentioned uh, last time as we close here, that verse 6 is a very important verse in that it fulfills part of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And you recall that we looked at that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Daniel, about 100 years before this, he's praying about the 70 years of captivity that's coming to an end. And as Daniel is praying, Gabriel shows up and says, Daniel, I'm not just going to, you know, come and answer you about 70 years, the captivity is over, but I'm going come and give you vision and understanding concerning 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years and we know that the prophecy goes on to say in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9 that when the command comes to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming of Messiah the prince should be a period of 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven years or 483 years or if you take it by days it's 173,880 days. So they've done the calculation that in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, verse 1 here, and the first day of Nisan, that it would go back to March 14, 445 B.C. That's when the command was given by Artaxerxes here in verse 6 for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, to rebuild and restore the city. And that's what he's going to do. That decree was not given by Cyrus to Zerubbabel. The decree was given you can go back and rebuild the temple, but not the city. Artists had just written a letter before this, tell those Jews not to rebuild the city, the walls, the streets, until I give the command. And now he gives the command. So you start counting 173,880 days from March 14, 445 B.C., and as has been calculated by the British Royal Observatory, you come to April 6, 32 A.D., when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, and they were crying out to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there was the fulfillment of an amazing prophecy that is part of Daniel's 70 weeks, that prophecy, 69 of those weeks being fulfilled, that the streets will be built again, as Daniel was told, even in troublesome times. This is troublesome times. And so Messiah has come on that time when he rode into Jerusalem for the first time, receiving public worship, and, um, and they would cry out to him that messianic psalm, and it would be just a few days later after that 
that the crowds were crying, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. So 69 weeks have passed. There's still one seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, that is known as the tribulation period. And we've talked about that in our prophecy studies. But I, I want us to notice something as we're going to continue on here. That Notice that it pleased the king, in verse 6, uh, to send me, and I set him uh, a time. That here is Artaxerxes, that I think he had great respect and, um, for Nehemiah and admin, you know, admired him and trusted him. As we see here that it pleased him to send Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not in rebellion. And it's interesting, as you look at individuals such as Daniel, who served Nebuchadnezzar king and Darius uh, at the end of his life, who Darius was one of the kings of the Medes and the Persians. As we know that it is in the book of Genesis, as you go back to Genesis, that it was Joseph, that he was the right-hand man of Pharaoh. It wasn't easy for those guys to be serving those Gentile you know, kings, Pharaoh, Daniel serving Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a hothead. I mean, he'd execute you just by getting mad at you and, and give the decree, and that was law. But yet Daniel found favor with Nebuchadnezzar and with Darius. Same with Nehemiah here. Matter of fact, it says of Daniel that he had an excellent spirit within him. And the reason that I'm kind of pointing this out is because as you're out there in the world, as you're in your workplace or you're doing business or with, um, you know, uh, whoever it might be, uh, those at school, uh, neighbors, uh, other family members, that it isn't easy. But I pray what they see in us is an excellent spirit, that they would see the reality of Jesus Christ in us. And somehow Daniel was able to show that excellent spirit, a man of great integrity, and character and 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 he was one that uh, was used of God in a powerful way same with Joseph Joseph he's in Egypt and he's in prison for 12 years he could have been bitter he could have been angry he was in prison because he was wrongly accused of making advances towards Potiphar's wife she lied and you know the story that that she's the one that made those advances and said lie with me and Joseph fled the scene he was just a young man at that time, but yet he was one that desired to do what was right before the Lord. And he was in that dungeon for 12 years, and that wasn't easy for him. And all of a sudden, one day, one day his life changed because he was trusting in the Lord, and he was looking to the Lord, and he knew that the Lord had not forsaken him. And all of a sudden, he is called up to interpret a dream for Pharaoh, and he finds himself as the prime minister of Egypt. Daniel, he's taken away, and all of a sudden, Daniel, he has opportunity to interpret a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and he finds favor with Nebuchadnezzar. He's able to, uh, to interpret the handwriting on the wall. He's able to, to be that excellent spirit before Darius. You see, you have opportunity as well. So what... I hope and praise that, Lord, help me to be that to those that I'm around, that I may be a light to them and a witness to them, and, and they may see somehow that, God, you're real in my life and you're real in me, an excellent spirit within us. Well, let's continue on in verse 7. Furthermore, Nehemiah writes, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So the letters were given and permission to rebuild the wall, and he asked for supplies to do the project. And again, Nehemiah had been praying. He's been seeking the Lord. And I think his heart is prepared to ask the king, I'm going to ask the king to go back and rebuild you know, the, the wall around Jerusalem. He senses that it pleased the king to send Nehemiah, and he says, listen, I, I need supplies. I need permission 
Um, I, I need um, these things to make it happen. So Nehemiah, he's been thinking about this, and his heart is ready and prepared to ask the king because he has been praying. And I just want to reiterate this truth once again, that before God works through you, he's going to work in you. He's going to prepare you. He's going to prepare me what he has for us so he is given that permission but then in verse 9 something happens then uh, i went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters now the king has set captains of the army and horsemen with me when sanballat uh, horonite and and tobiah the ammonite officials heard of it they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of israel so whenever God is working, you know that the enemy is there to oppose that work. And we've talked a lot about that in our previous studies. And it's something that we need to understand as Christians, that as we are living for the Lord and as you're growing in the Lord, as you're growing in God's word, as you have a desire to, to seek him in prayer, and, and as you desire to you know, ask God, what is it that you would have me to do? How is it that, that you want to use me, Lord? And know that he does. I just love what we went over Sunday as Paul the Apostle is writing about you know, his past to the Galatian believers and his conversion. And it says, it pleased God to save me. It, it pleased God to use me to go to the Gentiles. I was one that persecuted the church greatly. But yet it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me to go to the Gentiles. And it pleased God to save you. And it pleases Him to use Him for His glory. And that's why we were created, according to Revelation chapter 4, do you know that? That we were created, as it says in Revelation chapter 4, those angels singing that song before the throne of God, that we were created for His pleasures. That He works in us both to will and do of what philippians chapter 2 of his good pleasures the lord desires to use you desires to to use you in a way that brings him pleasure for his purposes and never lose that perspective and truth and know that it pleases god to use you you know i used to think oh the lord must just put up with me you know, it's amazing that he saved me, but when he used me, it's kind of like, you know, the Lord doesn't look at you or me and say, oh, I guess I'll give them something to do. I wonder what they should do. And, you know, and um, let's see. No, he, he's excited when his son, his daughter comes to him and says, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? Just as Saul did on that road to Damascus. And it pleases him to use us and where he has planted you, and how he has gifted you, and the opportunities that he's given to you. But know that as he will use you and for his good pleasures, that opposition is going to come against you, will come against me, will come against this church. Will you, will you and I understand that? Because a lot of times it throws us for a loop. And we get greatly discouraged. You see... The people in Jerusalem, in chapter 1, they were discouraged, they were defeated. Um, it was hard, it was difficult. That's where the enemy wants to keep us. He wants to keep people in the world defeated. He doesn't want them to hear the gospel. He doesn't want them to understand. He wants to keep the, the blindfolds on. He blinds those of the world. He doesn't want them to understand. But once we come to Christ and somebody comes along and gives them the gospel, and what I hope and pray is that we have a heart for the lost and we would share that with them and the, the truth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, and they would see it being worked out in our lives. But then know that as we come to the Lord, that he wants to try to bring us down in defeat and discouragement. He wants us to stay there. And know that the enemy will come against you and come against me as we desire to live for the Lord, as we desire to grow in the Lord, as we desire to please him. The children of Israel, when they're out there in the wilderness, God wanted to bring them into the promised land, that generation, so they could go and, and defeat the enemy and, and take the land that God had given to them, a good land. But they were out there in the wilderness 
crying that we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. It's too hard out here. And sometimes we'll find ourselves in wilderness experiences and times because we feel so defeated and because it's hard and the enemy comes against us. But the Lord wants to show his faithfulness to you and to me. Please don't give up. Don't give up if you're being attacked by the enemy because he will come against us. He will come against you and me. And he will do everything that he can to discourage us or try to keep us being used by the Lord where we say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. Or even the temptation might be to go back to Egypt, to the world, and go back to the old hangouts and do the old things and those kinds of things. But you trust in the Lord. So here are these you know, guys. We're going to hear a lot about them, Sanballat and, and Tobiah, deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And we continue in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I rose in the night and, I, and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. So here is Nehemiah. He uh, is in Jerusalem. He's there for three days. He doesn't really tell anybody why he's there. In other words, Jeremiah doesn't come riding up. You know, he's the king's cupbearer. He could have asked, you know, I need this large entourage, you know, with me. And, and, uh, but he comes in alone. He comes in quietly. And for three days, he's there. And what he's going to do is he's going to begin to survey the city. And he wants to get all the insight into looking at the city and what the city looks like and how much destruction has gone on before he told the people the project that he had come to oversee. They say timing is everything, right? And sometimes in our lives, when the Lord begins to open up doors for us, you know, he has the authority here to come and, and to you know, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. The decree has been given to him. He has supplies that are coming. But Nehemiah doesn't come in with a lot of noise and a lot of pomp and I'm the king's cupbearer and I'm here to, to build the wall so you get busy over there and you get busy over there. He doesn't do that. I think he uses wisdom here. He comes in, he wants to survey, he wants to come in and look at it. He wants to, to be able to encourage the people when it's time, which it will be, to say, let's rise up and let's build. So he begins to survey everything in verse 13. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and um, to the refuge gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down in his gates, which were burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. In other words, there was so much rubble that was still laying around. In verse 15, so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So in other words, again, Nehemiah's being quiet. He's being discreet. He, he sees all the rubble that's still laying around. He surveys in the night. And the reason that I think he does that so he wouldn't be drawing attention to himself. And also, I believe that Nehemiah at this time, in the nighttime, it's quiet and he's able to just pray. And I think that, that he's just there and, and at night, he didn't tell anybody. He's surveying. He's looking. He's praying, oh, Lord, look at the rubble. I can't even pass through it. For three nights, he's doing this. There's something about the night watches when we go to the Lord. It reminds me of one who came to Jesus by night. You know him, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, it was during the East and it would be busy all day long and he's the master teacher of Israel and it says that he comes to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? Because that's when it would be quiet and that's when he wouldn't be drawing attention to himself. This one who had come into Jerusalem and overturned the money changers tables and, and drove out those who sold animals there in chapter 2 and he comes to Jesus and he says to him, we know that you're of God because no one could do the things that you do unless God were with him. 
And it was Jesus that looked at Nehemiah, this man, who was of great reputation, of the council, the master teacher of Israel, who dedicated his life to teaching of the law and the sacrifices and, and trying to be blameless concerning the law. Here's Nicodemus, that he sees Jesus. He knows there's something about him. He got to be from God because he's doing these things and with authority. And Jesus turns to Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, if you want to be saved and see the kingdom of God. Not if they want to, but you, Nicodemus, you who are seen so righteous, you who have dedicated your life to keeping the law, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And that must have absolutely floored Nicodemus. He had never heard such a thing ever. What do you mean I must be born again? What does that mean? And you can sense that here he is, Nicodemus. He's kind of saying, help me understand. Can a man be born, you know, in his mother's womb a second time? And, and Jesus said, oh, Nicodemus, you're the master teacher of Israel. Don't marvel that I say that you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And know this, Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I don't know if Nicodemus understood it at that time, but he would later on, as John would go on to say in chapter 19, that when Jesus died on the cross, it was two of those disciples, Joseph of Arimathea, who was of the council, and Nicodemus, that went to ask Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus. They were secret disciples, is what the gospel says, but no longer when they went to ask for the body of Jesus to put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They said, we don't care. And I think that Nicodemus, as he saw Jesus up on that cross, he came to understand, now I understand. As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, there in the book of Numbers, as the people were being bitten by snakes, and Moses was told by the Lord, put, it, put that you know, serpent on a pole and raise it up in the middle of the camp. Who looks at it will be saved. And Jesus was lifted up on that cross because all of us have been bitten by the snake of sin. And the wages of sin is death. But as we look to the cross of Calvary, and as we realize that Jesus died for our sins and we need the Savior of the world in our lives and to repent and turn to Him, that we are saved, we have forgiveness of sin, and we come into right relationship with the Father. Nicodemus came to understand, and I don't care if it costs me my reputation, my standing in the council, I'm going to ask for the body of Jesus and anoint the body and put him into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Listen, I think that most of you that are here, you know what the night watches are. Those times where you're up in the night, it may be a time where perhaps you're grieving or you're weeping or you're saddened or maybe the Lord has put a burden on your heart. Maybe the Lord is stirring your heart and you get up. You know what you do? You seek the Lord and you pray. And it's a good time to do that. It's a good time in the quietness of the night watches that the Lord gets you up or you're up. And the Lord is putting things on your heart or you're heavy of heart. And you seek the Lord in those times, in the quietness of the night. And I know for me that those are very special times and they're very quiet times as well. You know, the kids aren't yelling, dog's not barking, phone's not ringing. And it's in those times that you can really draw close to the Lord. And I want to encourage you to do that. So I'm sure that Nehemiah, he's just praying to the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. He, he's surveying everything. And that's what I hope that you and I would just have a life of just, you know, surveying. Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Am I in the place where you want me to be? Lord, Put this on my heart. What does it mean? You know, I know that the Lord's been stirring my heart. And I'm surveying some things. That he's speaking to me. 
And Nehemiah at this time, he wasn't ready to tell the people about it, and I'm not ready to tell you or anybody else about it. But I know that the Lord is going to continue to speak to my heart, and he's going to continue to show me things that he wants to show me. And that's exciting. This Christian life that we're a part of is exciting. And I pray that we would just end those times daily and consistently that is quiet and we have opportunity to just really allow the Lord to survey, you know, what's going on in your life for you to say, Lord, here's where I'm at. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I in that place where you want me to be as I seek you, as I I look to you? And you'll be amazed how the Lord will begin to speak to you as you read the word. He'll speak to you. He promises to, in Isaiah chapter 30, to be a voice behind you saying, this is the way you walk in it. As you seek him, the wonderful counselor. And so take advantage of those times and know that it pleases him to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think in your life. This is difficult days for us to perhaps minister because we see that the world, our society, is getting further away from the Lord. And there's great challenges that, that you know, we as Christians can face. But it's also a very special time for you and I to say, Lord, in the days in which we're living in, in the days in which we're living in, Lord, I just want to survey. I just want to check. I just want to be sensitive to your leading. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. So what happens in verse 17 is then I said to them, you see the distresses that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. I love these two verses. Now it's time, Nehemiah says, to tell him why he's there. God's hand is on us, and we get approval from the king. Let us rise up and let us do this good work. Let's move forward. And they, in agreement, in one accord, they begin to say, yes, let's set our hands to this good work. It's going to be work but it's a good work and whatever God has for you to do it is work but it's a good work and that and know that I believe that he says to us um, to us as a church let's rise up and let's build let's keep doing the things of the Lord let's keep you know being a blessing and a witness and be of service and what God has for us to do Let's rise up and continue to build. I've said this before, but I think that the greatest danger to any church and even to this church is to get complacent. To get complacent and say, well, everything's good. Everything's cool. And we start to kind of get comfortable and we kick up our feet. And again, we live in days where I look and I think, wow, It is getting more perilous out there, just like you said would happen in the last days. Yeah, it is getting darker, but what a great opportunity for you and me to be a light and be a blessing and do the work of the Lord. And it's not a time to be sleepy or lethargic, but as Paul would encourage, you know, the church at Thessalonica, you know, watch and and be sober and be vigilant. And let us rise up and continue to do the work. Let's do what God has called us to do. And that's why it's important that we as a church, we be in prayer. You know, what's interesting, and I I know that I've talked about this before, but I get a lot of resources, and and, um, every week I I could be at a a, a conference or a seminar on how to build your church and your ministry. And and it's interesting that a majority of it is, you um, you know, how to, here's a, uh, steps to do that. Uh, here's how to have things right. Um, and, you know, here's the programs and here's the procedures and all of this. And very, very little of it is on seeking the Lord. 
and just teaching the people the Word of God and being committed to the Word of God. Very little is mentioned of that. And I know that what the Bible has to say is Nehemiah is a man of the Word and he's a man of godly integrity and character and he has favor from the king and he has the authority to be able to build the wall and he's encouraging the people and you see as we build may we build in a way that pleases God continuing in seeking him and being devoted to the word of God and in prayer and a breaking of bread that's what the early church did chapter 2 verse 42 they continue steadfastly in those things and may we do as well the Lord wants us, listen, to continue the build, especially in the days in which we're in. I think the Lord, you must be coming back soon. When you see the events going on around the world, I mean, even what's happened in the last couple of weeks, and I look at the Bible and I think, man, it's coming to pass. What you say is going to happen in the last days. And the turmoil and the perplexity of nations, as Jesus would speak about in the last days. I read an article today in the headlines of the Jerusalem Post. Actually, it's tomorrow morning there. And the headlines read in the Jerusalem Post that Net Netanyahu orders the Israeli Defense Force to prepare for possible strike on Iran during 2014. And Netanyahu has been one that's been blowing the trumpet and, and saying as the world powers are getting together those six nations and trying to negotiate with Iran over its nuclear program and they made a tentative deal six months ago and we want to finalize it and they're in talks right now and but the article goes on to read ever since the interim accord between Iran and the six powers was reached Netanyahu has stressed that Israel will not consider itself bound by it in the last few weeks, as talks on a permanent accord, had, accord have resumed, Netanyahu has upped his rhetoric on the Iranian issue and is again making implied threats about a possible unilateral Israeli strike on the Iranian nuclear sites. My friends, I believe that letting Iran enrich uranium would open up the floodgates. Netanyahu said at an AIPAC conference that was here in the United States earlier this month. That must not happen, and we will make sure that it does not happen. The defense minister of Israel indicated during a speech at Tel Aviv University that his view has shifted and he is now likely to support a unilateral Israeli strike on Iran in light of his assessment that the Obama administration will not do so. We think the United States should be one leading the campaign against Iran, he said, but the United States has entered talks with them, and unfortunately, in the haggling in the uh, Persian bazaar, the Iranians were better. Therefore, on this matter, we have to behave as though we have nobody to look out for us but ourselves. The Bible very clearly says that in the last days, that Israel is going to be more and more isolated, and we're seeing that. And I look at it, and I see what Iran uh, is doing and continuing their threats against Israel, continuing. They even signed a deal in the last month or so to build another nuclear reactor with Russia leading, you know, the scientists and the materials to be able to do that. They signed that pact with Russia, with Russia coming into Crimea and, um, and now taking over Crimea and, and Putin is very much against the West and uh, flexing his muscles. I think, you know, the Russian bear beginning to, to, you know, dominate in that area, wanting to dominate in the Middle East, I think, Ezekiel 38? Are we on the brink of seeing that? And this is a day for us to not go to sleep, but to rise up and build. And I pray that you would say, yes, Lord, I want to be a part of that in my life individually, what he has for you, for your family, for this church family. And they did it with one voice and one accord and that we would as well. And that we would just seek the Lord in, in the days and the weeks and, and step out in faith and sleep see what he wants to do. I believe he wants to do so much more in reaching our city, this county,
with the gospel and giving hope to people that have no real hope because our only hope is in Jesus Christ and be part of building the kingdom of God in these last days and being a light to others. So here they, they say, let's rise up and do this good work. And it is a good work. Always remember that. And then as we finish tonight, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And that's what the enemy will do with you, with your family, with this church. He'll laugh at us. He'll despise us. Who do you guys think that you are? That you can turn a city for Jesus Christ. This community. This county. Northern Colorado. Who do you think that you are? Well, we belong to the king. And we have his authority. And we have the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we do it with the confidence of the Lord. Prayerfully seeking him, looking to him in everything. So next week when we get into chapter 3, chapter 3 is so rich, we're going to see them begin to build the wall. And as they will go and they will build these gates and they'll you know, hang the gates. And each one of these gates that we're going to see is going to speak and we can make application for our lives how it is that we can be building the kingdom of God, be doing that good work that he wants us to do. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this Bible study. And, Lord, um, just a powerful, rich book that we're in. And, Lord, Nehemiah, going back in troublesome times, doing the work of the Lord, we live in troublesome times, and, Lord, you have work for us to do, good pleasures. And Lord, may we be sensitive to that. And Lord, I do pray that, that we wouldn't get so caught up in the world and the things of the world. And, and it can easily happen because we all have jobs. We all have you know, things we need to do, responsibilities. And we get busy with those things. But Lord, we would be sensitive to your leading and prioritize just, Lord, living for you, being a light to others. And, Lord, whether that's okay, I'm going to raise my children, we're going to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. We're going to be committed to that. And we're going to teach them the word of God. Or I'm going to be a light of Or I'm going to maybe start sharing the Bible, maybe have a little Bible study at work or whatever it might be for you. Will you survey the opportunities that you might have and what the Lord might speak to you? And I pray that we would be sensitive to the leading of the Lord and get to that quiet place, whether it's night or day or whenever it is for us. And seek the Lord. And know that He wants to use you. It pleases him to use you. He desires to do that good work through you. And Lord, for this church, I thank you for the work that you've done here, but you're not through with us. And what my prayer is for Calvary Chapel Greeley is we wouldn't grow complacent. We wouldn't just get comfortable. But Lord, that we would know that there's a lot of people out there that you love and died for your son that need to hear the gospel, that need to hear God's word. And we pray that the opportunities that we have will continue and increase. Just as Paul would ask, pray for us that the word of God may spread quickly, run swiftly, and be glorified. Lord, I pray for the radio program and Grace FM that gospel and the truth of your word goes throughout the airwaves that it would touch many for you. 
that people would come to salvation knowing that Jesus died for their sins that he loves them wants to give them eternal life and that abundant life that they would know that there's a living hope that comes through Jesus Christ and the only hope that there really is that Lord is as as we invite people to hear the word or share ourselves to the people at work um, to our neighbors families friends that we have that we care about that Lord that we would be sensitive to that and press in and Lord let them know that we care about them and love them to give them the gospel and the truth Father I pray even tonight if there's anyone that's listening live stream or here that might be here tonight you've never given your life to Jesus perhaps you you've gone to church maybe you've been religious but you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and making it a personal relationship with him putting your faith in him for salvation and forgiveness of sin trusting that what he did on Calvary's cross and dying for your sins say I want to know you Lord and receive you as my personal Lord and Savior will you do that tonight he loves you Jesus said if I be lifted up I will draw all men to myself that is it's a message for anyone to be drawn to him and to look at him dying on that cross just as Nicodemus came to understand I was bitten by the snake of sin and Jesus hung on that cross to save me you come and you cry out to Jesus. And you pray, Jesus, I know you died for me on Calvary's cross, and I have sinned, and I now turn to you. Forgive me of my sins. And I believe that you rose from the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and you're alive. Come into my heart. Thank you for being my personal Lord and Savior and for receiving me and that it pleased you to save me. Help me to live for you and be fully surrendered to you. And Lord, may we, moment by moment and day by day, just live in the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. Fill us with your wisdom and strength. Be that voice behind the thing. This is the way to